not taking 30 seconds any longer. Good to see everybody, or at least those of you who aren't still on spring break or didn't use spring break as an excuse to go somewhere. It's good to see you. Um, got a lot to do this morning. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3 is where we'll be, where we've been. Um, while you're turning there, a couple exciting um, announcements or updates for you. Uh, Redemption Hills uh, baby bonanza has officially begun. Um, really, February 12th, Andrew and Liz Walker were the first, gave birth to Josiah, and they're at home doing well, hanging in there. Hanging there. How big was he when he was born? 7-1, Josiah. Um, yeah, let's see, yesterday, uh, Chris and Beth Whiting gave birth to Hope Elizabeth Whiting. Uh, they're at St. Francis doing really well um, and would love to hear from anyone that, that wanted to uh, check in on them and see them uh, later on today and tomorrow they'll probably still be there. Um, and then this morning, um, Caleb and Penelope Valentine gave birth to Elijah Valentine this morning, um, so about six o'clock. So baby Bonanza is on its way. Um, we've got a little more time before the next one, uh, and then one more after that, and then 10 more to come in <laughs> the end of the summer and the first part of the fall. So uh, let me pray for us. We'll pray for them, pray for the families, continue to pray for uh, just the amazing blessing that God has given us um, in these kids, uh, that we love them, cherish them, and, and not disregard them. So let's pray, and we'll get going. Lord Jesus, thank you again for the opportunity uh, that we have to be together, the opportunity that we have to submit ourselves to you, to be changed by you and transformed by you, uh, the opportunity we have to know you more completely and more fully. And Lord, we ask uh, that you do amazing work in our hearts during this time. Lord, help us to not take this time for granted and to not take it lightly, Um, but may we seek you in everything that we do and may you be glorified in all that we say. And Father, we thank you again, not only for this opportunity to be together, but for the the families that you have given us and and the amazing blessing of children that you're giving us as a church. And we just ask your continued protection and your continued blessing over these families who have given birth and who are awaiting that day to come. And and Lord, we ask for wisdom and for patience and for diligence as a church family uh, to be their extended family to them, to encourage these families, to come alongside and help and support, uh, to see ourselves as brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts to these kids and and to take an active role in helping to cultivate your character in their hearts as they grow and they take shape, Lord. So help us not to despise what you're doing. Um, And Lord, please, please, please uh, be with the families that are having these babies and and let your peace reign in those homes. Um, Let there be no fear um, of transition and change, uh, but let your peace come and let wisdom flow. We ask these things in the name of your precious Son. Amen. All right, Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. You were all waiting for it all week, weren't you? I got the emails from some of you, not able to sleep, so excited. We're going to talk about Colossians 3, 18. Again, it's so excited. Just can't wait to hear what in the world we have to say about this, weren't you? Yeah, you weren't really. Colossians 3, verses 18 through 20. We started it last week. We'll, we'll read a little bit of it this week, and we're going to Back up to better understand it, and we'll keep going. Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. 
last week, we, we got started on this in, 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 a, in a kind of a truncated way. But we said one of the things that we do in the church that really does a great deal of damage to this chapter, to these passages, and I'm going to move this because for those of you who are new, I'll end up in the back row by the time we're done. So I got to have a landing ground and a, and a runway. Um, one of the ways we do damage to these verses and our understanding of these verses is, is by putting these verses in between this little break in the Bible. We'll be studying and reading and praying and going through chapter 3, and you come to this strange break in the text where now it says rules for households or rules for husbands and wives, depending on what your Bible actually says. When in the actual letter, there was never this break that was put there. You were reading this, and you're, you're understanding the flow and the rhythm of what Paul is talking about, and you would never come to this strange break in the letter that would divorce your understanding of where he's going from, where he's been. But we tend to read this Bible, and we tend to get to these kind of passages and take them out of their context, out of their rhythm and, and flow of where they fit in the chapter and the rhythm and flow of where they fit in the entire book, and, and really out of the rhythm and flow of where they fit in God's story of redemption that starts way back in the beginning. And we take these verses in particular and we pull them out and we use them in isolation and oftentimes they become instruments of our own justification, our own efforts to justify behaviors and attitudes that may not honor God. Oftentimes we use them to justify behaviors and attitudes towards other people and seeking to get from them, from our spouse more specifically, what we think we want and what we think they should give us. And we tend to use them out of their context and understand them out of the context of, uh, of the message that God has been speaking throughout the entire book and throughout the entire Bible. So to better understand them, to better make sense of them, to better understand what God is saying through these things, you've got to back up and you've got to get them in their context. It's a bit like those, um, what are they, the Russian nesting dolls? You ever play with those things? Our neighbors had those things, and you loved them, but they're those little wooden dolls that are they're round and flat on the bottom, and you've got to take them apart, and there's another one in there, and you take it apart, there's another one, you keep going, you keep going, you keep going, until you get the tiny little one. And if you don't put them back in their appropriate order, in the place that they're supposed to be, they never quite get back together. You know, they don't actually fit together if you don't put them back the way they're supposed to be. And understanding these verses, really understanding much of the Bible uh, in particular, but these verses specifically, is like playing with these dolls. You've got to understand how it fits into the story of what's happening, how it fits into the flow of what's being said. And so we're going to have to back up a little bit. We, we did this a little bit last week, so I won't be too detailed. But you've got to back up a little bit to understand how these verses specifically fit into the letter, into what Paul's saying, and how they specifically fit into the purpose that God has for this thing that we call marriage and the role that the marriage plays in God's history and story of redemption, if we're going to understand what it actually means to be husbands who sacrificially lay our lives down for our wives and, and wives who recognize the responsibility and the role that God has given our husbands and, and give ourselves to that. And so we've got to back up and see that the, the context of submission and servant leadership finds itself in a battle that Paul's been talking about in Colossians 3 to put to death the sin that still remains in our soul. I mean, this whole thing falls in this flow, but we're going to have to back up even further than that. You'll go back to Genesis chapter 1. And don't, don't, don't go there, I'll just tell you. Genesis chapter 1, in the very beginning, you get this great picture. We get to, get to really eavesdrop and peek in on an unbelievable conversation between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Before anything that was, or is, was, see, I wasn't an English major. Before anything that is, was, there's public school for you. God the Father had this unbelievable conversation with himself, and he said, you know what, let us make man in our image. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, infinitely and eternally satisfied and delighted in the presence of the other. 
the perfect reflection of the Godhead being given back to them in the presence of the fullness of the Godhead, they say, let us make man in our image. And with just a word, God creates man and and woman. One of the things we said last week that we've got to catch in this that I think we, we, we skim over really quick or we, we kind of tack on as an addendum is that when God did this, he invested an equal amount of dignity and honor in both men and women. Both men and women were created in his image. Both men and men, women reflect back to God the glory of his character. One does not reflect back to God and represent the character and the glory of God in any way that's more superior or inferior to the other. Both men and women were invested by God with an equal amount of his image and dignity and likeness. And so when we talk about what it means to to love one another, to honor one another, to serve one another, we're talking about as husbands and wives loving, honoring, and serving one who carries an equal amount of the image of God. There is no inferiority or superiority in relation to the way we were created in God's eyes. And in chapter two, you kind of get to zoom the lens in a little bit and, and the focus gets a little tighter on what was going on. And we get the story of God creating man, creating Adam and placing him in this garden. God had created the earth and he created on the earth this, this garden, this place of delight and beauty and he, and he placed Adam in the middle of it. And he gave Adam this responsibility and this authority to go about cultivating that garden, to go about putting his hands to doing a work to enhance the beauty that God had invested in his creation and to see that beauty and to see that place spread across the entire earth. God came to Adam and said, here's your responsibility. You are to cultivate this creation to reflect my character, my nature, my likeness. This garden is to, is to spread across this place. And, and Adam, in dependence upon God and in worship of God, began to do the very thing that God had asked him to do and called him to do and put him in this place to do. And God began to watch and began to see, you know what, it's not good. It's not good that Adam do this by himself. It's not good for him to be alone. And as God looked around at all that he had created, he saw that there wasn't a a helper that was suitable for Adam. There wasn't one that was suitable for him. And so Adam gets to take what probably is the best nap ever recorded in history. And when he wakes up, there's Eve. Can you imagine? I mean, can you just, just stop for a second? Can you imagine what that first glimpse, that first moment of absolutely undefiled, sinless beauty looked like in his eyes. He woke up, and all he could do was sing. And that's what happens. Your Bible breaks the the text out a little bit, and you see this little indent in the text in Genesis 2. It's a song. Adam's response to the work of God and the creation of woman was music. All he could do was sing. All he could do was respond to God and respond to this woman in worship and thanks. Unbelievable. And here's something we didn't talk about last week that I want you to see. In particular, in Genesis chapter 2, when God talks about Eve being a a helpmate that's suitable to Adam, I want you to get the the gist of what he's actually saying. Because I think this will help us as we go forward in understanding what Paul's saying uh, in Colossians chapter 3. The word that is used in Genesis chapter 2 for Eve being a helpmate that's suitable for Adam 
is the same word that's used throughout the entire Old Testament, predominantly referring to God himself and his relationship with us. God takes this very same word, this, this, this Hebrew word that means helpmate, that means helper, for himself when he speaks about himself in relation to us. Throughout the entire Old Testament, and it's just jam-packed in, in the Psalms, you'll find that God refers to himself as a helper, our helper, a helpmate. And even more particularly, if God, in his infinite superiority, in his infinite and unapologetic difference from us, does not see it demeaning to himself to take that title upon himself and refer to himself in relation to us in that way, how, how much more so should we better understand and appreciate and value what God says about Eve, what God says about the role and, and the calling that he's put upon this woman that he's given this man? I mean, if God, who is so much greater, so different, doesn't find it demeaning, why in the world do we allow ourselves to take an understanding, to take a calling and take a gifting and twist it and shame it into such a thing that it becomes, in some sense, repulsive in our ears? I don't know. I don't know. But God says, not only is she a helpmate, but she's a helpmate that's suitable for him. See, God did not just make Eve in, 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 in a generic and nonspecific way. He made Eve to be a helpmate, a helper just like himself that was suitable for Adam. She was created and placed with Adam, invested with, with an, a dignity and a worth and talents and gifts that were specifically purposeful to help her, to help him pursue the mission and the calling that God had given him and now them as a family. Eve was made a helper. She was made a helpmate for him that was particularly well-suited for Adam. Though they were equal in, in essence and in dignity before God, yet possessed inherent differences as men and women, she was given particular gifts that were perfectly suitable to help enhance the calling that God had given them as a family. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And we tend to talk about this helpmate, this, this person that's supposed to come alongside and just be and do, and, and we'll get to what that looks like later on, but that's not at all the way that God is speaking of it. There is a vast worth. There is a vast value. There is a dignity that is latent within this creation, within this calling of, of Eve and with this calling of, of wives to be these helpmates to their husbands. But we'll get to it in a little bit more. But we continue on. You got Genesis 2, puts them there. Now, Adam and Eve, God has given this great calling to go, to fill the earth, to multiply and subdue the earth. Now, not only was Adam put in this place to go and to cultivate the garden, to, to, to create the, the, the spread of the garden, to reflect God's character, to see the beauty of God in this place spread across all of creation, now he and Eve together as a family were called by God on that same purpose and with that same mission to cultivate creation, to reflect the character of God, to fill the earth, to, to reproduce and, and to cultivate the character of God in themselves and in their children and in this earth that it might reflect God's character through all of creation. They 
had a particular purpose and a particular mission that God had invested in their relationship and in the very creation of man and woman and in the putting them together as a husband and a wife and in the creation of a family, that as a family, they were going to reflect the character of God and be about cultivating the character of God throughout all of creation, and that's what they set out to do. I mean, we talked about it a bit last week. Your, your understanding of your marriage and your vision for your marriage, or your marriage, I should say, will never be greater than the vision or the purpose that you have for it. And the purpose that God invested in this initial relationship for marriage was for a husband and a wife together to be about cultivating the character of God throughout all of creation, starting with themselves being created beings. They together were to cultivate and enhance the beauty of God that was latent in themselves, that with one another they would help enhance the image and the reflection of God in their own lives, and together they would be about cultivating the character of God throughout all of creation. That's the purpose for marriage. That's what they were to do. And Genesis 2 kind of wraps up with them going about the business and the mission that God had given them. And Genesis 3 comes in and things get fractured. Genesis 3 comes in and sin begins to enter the picture and all that God had created and all of the beauty and all of the value and dignity and, and worth and all of the glory that was inherent in creation gets fractured with the entrance of sin. And now as man and, and, and wife and Adam and Eve were, were to be about cultivating the garden, cultivating creation, that the character of God would be reflected, that this garden would spread throughout the earth. Instead of cultivating this and seeing the garden grow and seeing the garden spread and seeing the beauty of God and the glory of God spread throughout all the earth, now they put their hands to the ground and they began to work, they began to cultivate, and what came back wasn't the garden. It was thorns, it was thistles. The earth fought them. It pushed back against them. Chaos had, had entered into creation and now what they were called to do fought back against them and instead of being allies in this mission to cultivate creation, to reflect God's character, now they were, they were after each other. They were seeking to get from the other. They were seeking to gain power over the other. They were seeking no longer to work together to be about what God had called them to do, but to try to take from one another. So instead of having an ally in this mission, an ally in this purpose, now not only does the earth fight back against them, but they fight back against one another and push back against one another. And this is kind of where we ended last week, that with the entrance of sin and the fracture of creation and the fracture in the relationship between man and, man and woman, between husband and wife, the mission and the purpose for marriage never changes. God does not redefine the mission that he gave Adam, that he gave that first family in the very beginning. God doesn't say no longer are you supposed to be about being a family that cultivates the character of the creator in all of creation. No longer does he say that's not what you're supposed to do. He says that's in fact what you're supposed to do. The mission never changes. It, it never changes. So now how are we supposed to do it as sinful men, sinful women, God's called us to the very same thing that he called us to in the very beginning, just our desires are no longer the same. Our desires are no longer there to honor him and live a life of conscience, conscious dependence upon him that reflects his value and his worth as we do that, that together then we cultivate the image of God latent in one another to reflect and enhance his glory all the more than to put our hands to reflecting and cultivating the creation to reflect his glory anymore. Now we want for ourselves. Now we want to make much of ourselves. Now we want to use one another and use things to make much of ourselves and to make a name that's great for ourselves and what we want and what we deserve. And the mission's never changed, just our desires have. 
our wants have. And husbands and wives becomes things, become things that we use to get what we want. No longer are they part of the call of God to see enhanced, to reflect his character and his greatness and his glory or use for our own. So how then do we do it? How then do we do it? That's the big picture. That's the, the big rhythm and the big flow of the institution of marriage and the creation of marriage that gets us to Colossians when Paul says, well, here, here's the reality of what God has done. Though sin had fractured everything that God had created and had brought distance and separation between man and God, between husband and wife, God has now made in himself one new man and reconciled to himself all that had put their trust in him that were at one time separated from him. See, these people had come into this church and began to tell these, this little church that though God had, had, had done great things through Jesus, though the, the message of the gospel was true and though it was a good thing, it, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to fulfill your desires. It wasn't enough to f- fulfill your longings. You're still supposed to pursue something, something, a greater fullness, a greater experience of life, a, a greater power and a greater authority and something other than God. And Paul's come into this little church, and in the first three chapters, he's laid an unbelievable foundation of the person and the work of Christ and sufficiency of Christ and how that transforms how we understand who we are. And we've spent weeks going through this, weeks unpacking how Paul has said that the understanding of who God is absolutely transforms the way we understand ourselves. And he gets to this great point at the beginning of chapter three when he says, now, because of this, you understand that your lives are hidden with Christ in God or with God in Christ. You are now hidden in Christ. Christ is now your life. You are now to look to Christ for sufficiency and satisfaction and understanding. You are now to live your life in response to who God is for you in Christ. And that response demands action. And that chief action is to begin to put to death the the sin and the desires that still wage war within your soul those desires that still call you to seek things for yourself, those desires that still cause you to use others and to use creation for your own ends and, and not to be about God's purpose of cultivating his character in them and in yourselves. And, and we talked for weeks about what it means to put to death the sin that still remains. And, and so we get to chapter three, verse 18, in the rhythm and the flow of the scripture and the rhythm and the flow of the book and the rhythm and the flow of the chapter and it's, chapter and it's just this battle. We find ourselves as men and women, as husbands and wives, allies yet unable at times to work together in this great battle to cultivate the character of God in creation that's pushing back against us because chaos has entered in sin. And together we're called by God and created in his image and endowed with gifts and talents and worth and dignity to push that chaos back that his character might be cultivated. But we've got to be about doing the battle with the sin that still remains in our hearts. So the battle that we engage in as a couple, the battle that we engage in as a husband and a wife finds itself in the context of the battle that we engage in in our own souls to put to death the sin that still remains. Because there's sin that still remains in our hearts that still wants to use others and to use things for ourselves. And so if we're going to understand what it means for a man to lovingly and sacrificially lay his life down for his wife, we're going to have to understand the reality that we're not going to want to that there is still sin that remains in our hearts that wants to use our wives to gain something for ourselves. There's still sin in our hearts that wants to use other people to get for ourselves some sense of joy or or satisfaction or identity or or purpose. And as wives, we're going to begin to read and and hear, and no longer are we going to recognize the reality of what God has has put on the shoulders of our husband and the responsibility that he has put on our husbands. We're going to look and 
we're not going to want to recognize that. We're going to want to find ourselves in a, in a completely different place. So to understand what it means to submit to our husbands as, as is fitting to the Lord and what it means to love our, love our wives and, and not be harsh with them, we, we've got to see that it's in the context of this great fight. And this great fight that God has put men and women in together to reveal his character and his glory to the earth and in the context of this great fight within our own souls, this great fight with the sin that remains within our hearts. So we're going to unpack this a little bit this morning. And we're going to do it, I want you to flip backwards in your Bible to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians was another letter that Paul wrote to a church in a region really near to Colossae. And, and the understanding by most scholars is that Ephesians would have been a letter that would have been circulated throughout the region. And so the expectation would be that these people in Colossae would have read the letter to the Ephesians or at some point would have become familiar with it. And so what we find in Ephesians is really an expanded version of Colossians. And um, in Ephesians 5, we really see an expanded version of what we see in Colossians 3. So I want to talk a little bit about what it means, what, what it means to, to love our wives and what it means to submit to our husbands in the way that Paul unpacks it here in the book of Ephesians. We've got Ephesians, look at Ephesians 5, look at verse 22. Paul says, wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Here's what I want you to get first and foremost about submission. Submission, contrary to popular belief, popular understanding, and whatever makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, is first and foremost an attitude of heart. And the Bible talks about submission, in particular wives being submissive or subject to their husbands. It's talking about an inner disposition of the heart. The Bible is far more concerned, first and foremost, for the state of your heart than the imperfect ways in which it lives itself out. You see, when we misunderstand how the Bible plays these things out, these verses become weapons. They become clubs that we can use to hammer each other with. Submission, this particular word that Paul uses in Ephesians, and he uses it, in, in, and Peter uses it in 1 Peter when he says, wives, be subject to your husbands. It's actually a military term. It's actually a term that's used to define positional authority. You see, in the military, everybody... Everybody's clear and everybody recognizes who has what responsibility and who carries what responsibility. And when you recognize the roles and the responsibilities that different positions take, you voluntarily submit yourselves to the responsibility of another person. If you don't, if our soldiers did not recognize the responsibility and the authority that was invested in someone to lead them, to care for them, to guide them, to protect them, they do it at the risk of their own life. They do it at the risk of their own life. When Paul talks about submission, and when Peter talks about it in 1 Peter, what he's talking about is a recognition of a positional authority that God has given the husband and a willingness to recognize that and to recognize that God has given the wife skills and gifts and values inherent to complement the role of and the calling that he's given the husband. 
See, more, more often than not, when we talk about submission, what we're talking about is a particular behavior. We're talking about however one man or another man defines what being submissive really is. Talking about whether or not uh, certain things get done or whether or not uh, wives respond to things in a particular way. And, and that's never what the Bible's getting at. It's getting at an inner disposition. It's getting at a, a matter of the heart. It's getting at a recognition of, of whether or not you have recognized what God has put upon the husband. Listen to this. I want, I want to read you this. This was really helpful for me. Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. It's not an absolute surrender of her will. Rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. Christ is her absolute authority, not the husband. A wife submits to her husband out of reverence for Christ. See, submission... Submission is an inner disposition of the heart that recognizes the role and the responsibility that God has given to the husband. Flip side, it helps to understand what submission is by looking at what it's not. It's not inferiority. Submission is never inferiority. You see, the culture tends to recognize and define roles and invest them with worth. The culture makes this leap that the Bible never actually makes at all and begin to see the callings and the roles that God has given men and women or husbands and wives and begin to invest a value of worth or dignity in them and, and submission has never, ever, ever been about inferiority. Jesus was not inferior to God the Father or the Holy Spirit. But a careful reading of Scripture, you see that Jesus submitted to his mom and dad he recognized the responsibility and the role that God had given Mary and Joseph in his raising, and he submitted to his mom and dad, not inferior to Mary and Joseph. Jesus submits to God the Father. You see, in the process of the Trinity, the, really, the story of redemption and the action of redemption in the, in the entire scope of the Bible, the Trinity in and of itself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is a, is a beautiful picture of submission. God the Father is the head of the Son, and the Son sends the Spirit. Inferior to one another? No. But they carry out different roles. They carry out different functions. So submission is never, is never to be understood as an issue of inferiority. It also doesn't mean that a wife never has an opinion. It doesn't mean that a wife never has a say in matters. It never means that a wife then cannot correct or encourage her husband. The reality of it is God has invested unbelievable wisdom and gifts in every woman. And when a man and a woman become one and they become a husband and a wife, God has invested this responsibility in the man to stand before him one day and give a response to the cultivation of his character in his wife and in his family. Listen, if you are married or if you will be married, and I assume that most of you will be one day, as husbands, you will stand before God one day to answer for the character of soul of your family. Every individual will ultimately answer to God for how they've lived in, in, in response to who he is. But in particular, husbands will stand before God for how the image of God and how the character of Christ was cultivated in the lives of their family. Wives and kids. 
you will do that. Just as the elders and the leaders of the church will stand before God to give an account for the souls that God had put in their charge, husbands will do that for their families. You are pastors of a very small church. I remember one day sitting, sitting somewhere, I don't remember who, who told me, and I remember wrestling with the call to, to be a pastor and, and, and what I thought God was doing in my life. And, and I don't remember who told me, I wish I could remember. But I remember him look, a man looking at me and telling me that it's absolutely arrogant to think that God would invest me with the responsibility for the care and the cultivation of his bride if I couldn't do it in my own. If I could not love my wife in such a way as to cultivate the character of Christ in her, what business would God have of investing in me with the cultivation and the character of his own? So husbands, you are pastors already. Some of you want to be pastors here. You're already pastors. You have a small church at home, and you have the responsibility to cultivate the character of God in the soul of your wife and of your kids. Wives, you have been given unbelievable wisdom and insight and gifting from God to come alongside your husband and to see the cultivation of the character of Christ in his life and in the lives of your family. Men, you need to be about understanding and responding to what God has invested in your wives. You need to seek their wisdom, seek their insight. You need to better understand who they are, the gifts that God has given them, and to seek their input on things that you're doing in your family. To submit to the leadership of a husband, to, to submit to the husband as it's fitting to the Lord does not mean that the wife has no say and no value and no response and, and no choice and, and, and can't speak even correction to her husband. To say that a wife is, is submissive, to say that a wife is, is to submit to her husband as it's fitting to the Lord, this is a tricky one, hold on. Paul said that wives were to submit to their husbands as, just as the, the church has submitted to Christ or as Christ is the head of the church. And this is the tricky one. This is the one I pray about a good bit. It means that your submission is to be extensive. It's to be extensive. It's not to pick and choose. How does the church submit itself to Christ? We submit our lives and we submit ourselves to Christ in everything, in everything. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to say, well, in this aspect of my life or in this aspect of the church, we'll submit to the, to the leadership and the lordship of Christ. But in this thing, I think I know better and I think I'll pursue this aspect of my life or this aspect of the church in, in this particular way, the way that I think is best. Submission is to be extensive. Now here's where it gets tricky. It gets tricky because what we tend to do when we talk about these things is we tend to talk about submission extracted from the context of a loving Christ-like servant leadership and as a response from the husband. We tend to talk about submission in the roles of wives in alienation, in separation from where it is always found in the Bible in the context of a submissive, Christ-like, self-sacrificial, lay-down-your-life kind of love and leadership that comes from the husband. And when we talk about submission being extensive, it becomes difficult because 
for the most part, this is not the way that the majority of men love their wives. Submission as a heart and as an inner disposition becomes very difficult because men fail daily to love their wives with the Christ has loved the church. And so when we talk about submission being extensive, there are 10,000 exceptions that pop up in everybody's minds. What about this? And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? Here's the thing, and I try to say it as loving as I can. We, we cannot establish biblical principles off exceptions. We can't. There are circumstances and situations in lives and marriages and relationships here that automatically pop up in our head when we talk about submitting ourselves, of wives submitting themselves to husbands because the husbands do not love them the way that Christ has called them to. Listen, submission as a disposition does not mean that you submit to your husband if he leads you into sin. You don't follow your husband there. Submission does not extend to circumstances of abuse. It does not extend to circumstances of physical abuse. More often than not, where this becomes difficult is that churches have stood up and taught that Submission is extensive and therefore, though a husband treats you this way, though he physically treats you this way and love you this particular way, you're supposed to submit to him? No. That's not what it's talking about. Listen. See if this helps. The supreme authority of Christ qualifies the authority of her husband. A wife should never follow her husband into sin. Nevertheless, when she may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, where she does not yield to her husband's unbelief, she can still have a spirit of submission, a disposition to yield. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake sin and to lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again produce harmony. Submission is an inner disposition, an inclination to recognize the responsibility and the authority that God has invested in the husband and to submit an individual right to exert a will for the better of the family, for the better of of the marriage, for the better of the relationship. It is not submission to abuse. It is not submission to exploitation. Does that make sense? but it's always found throughout the entire Bible. It's always talked about in the context of a relationship where a husband is to love his wife whether that Christ has loved the church. Submission is always found in the context of a husband who lays himself down, his rights down, his will down, that he might cultivate the character of Christ in his wife and lead his family to reflect God's character to a watching world, that he might reflect the character and the image of God in his wife and in his kids, and he lays down his own individual rights and wants and wills to see that happen. Submission is always found in connection to a servant leadership, to a Christ-like leadership. That's what Paul's saying in, in Ephesians chapter 5. Here, we'll keep reading real quick, and then we'll, we'll pick on guys a lot next week. Um, listen to what he says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Proverbs 30, it says, Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, a fool when he's filled with food, and here's the most devastating, an unloved woman when she gets a husband. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. Submission, the understanding of this inner disposition or inclination to submit to the responsibility and the role that God has given the husbands to lead the family, to cultivate his character in their lives and throughout all of creation is always found linked to the calling of men to submit to, their, to Christ and to love their wives in a particular way that reflects his character and his love and his grace towards us. It's never found in isolation. And the reason it becomes such a difficult concept and a hard concept is not just the sin that resides within our hearts. It's not just the self-centeredness that we have to do battle with on a daily basis. And in particular, in this context, in wives and, and what God had said would, be, would come upon them because of sin and this desire to rule over their husbands. It's not just that. That's not what gives way to this whole idea of submission being difficult. What makes it difficult is the fact that men fail over and over and over and over and over again to recognize their submission to Christ and their calling from God to love their, their wives and their families in a way that reflects the way that he has loved us. That's what makes it really hard. That's what makes it really difficult. That's what makes this concept of understanding how a sinful man and a sinful woman together can become one flesh in a marriage and yet be about the mission and the call of God to cultivate his character in their lives and in their families and, and in all that they do. What makes it difficult is that men fail so often to do the very thing that God has called them to do. They make the inner disposition of submission and an inclination to recognize their authority very hard. It is, it is first and foremost a sin problem, and outside of that, it's first and foremost always a man's problem. Always a man's problem. I was reading uh, this week someone, in, I think it was in Time Magazine, uh, not a, it wasn't a, a Christian writer, it was a, uh, I think it was a, it was an anthropologist or a sociologist, I mean, uh, writing about the nature of, of relationships between men and women throughout history. And this woman actually said, it, it's, or this man, excuse me, actually said that it was time to quit blaming the culture and blaming movements like feminism for the breakdown and the understanding of what it means for a man to love his wife and a wife to love their husband and time to put the responsibility and the blame squarely back on the shoulders of men who have failed to love their wives the way that God's called them to. Men make it difficult. Men create the problems. So what does it look like? What are the characteristics of a man who loves his wife the way that Christ has loved the church? What are the characteristics of the relationship from a husband towards a wife that cultivate and enhance a willing disposition to understand his role, responsibility, and authority and submit to it? One, how did Christ love the church? If you're to love your wife the way that Christ has loved the church, what characteristics define the way that Christ has loved the church? Christ did not 
wait for the church to decide that they were ready to worship him. They were ready to sing songs about him. They were ready to pull out their guitars and their xylophones and their banjos and and sing songs of his greatness and of his glory and, and to just bust out in celebration for who he is. God came, became sin, had his body ripped and torn apart on the cross that we might be reconciled to God and have the capacity to be reconciled to one another. He did not wait for us to decide that we wanted him. He came and he entered the the chaos of the world that we were called to cultivate and he did for us what we could not do for ourselves and he initiated the process of salvation and redemption and transformation. And to love your wife the way that Christ has loved the church first and foremost means that you have an attitude and an inner disposition of initiation and responsibility, really. Uh, we talk a lot, or you'll read a lot, or you'll hear a lot if you listen to this or read about this in churches about initiation and the responsibility to be on the man to initiate. Yeah, that's true, but it really finds itself in a, in a larger context of responsibility. You can initiate a lot of things without any sense of responsibility. The responsibility falls upon the husband to initiate the process of transformation, redemption, healing, wholeness, forgiveness, reconciliation, love, mercy, nurture, all of those things in their family. What it means is that when you recognize as a husband or as a wife that there has been a, there's a breach in the relationship, a difficulty that's come, a, an argument that's happened, a disagreement that's occurred, or something that's foul, it is on husbands to initiate the process of forgiveness and healing and nurture and reconciliation and not wait for the wife to do that. It means that you look at your wife and you say, I recognize that this exists, that there's a problem here, that we're we're frustrated with each other, that we might be angry or or might be discontent or whatever it might be, and for my part in it, I'm sorry. Can you please forgive me? For my part in this, this is what I have done. Can you please forgive me? Because this is not the way our, our relationship and our marriage is to be characterized. And it's to initiate that process and do that not waiting for the response of, I forgive you, now here's what I've done. It's just to initiate the process of forgiveness and to be about initiating the cultivation of reconciliation with your wife. That's one way it looks, but it's responsibility. It's accepting and owning the responsibility that God has given you to cultivate the character of Christ in your family, whatever that may look like. To love your wife the way that Christ has loved the church is you recognize the responsibility that you have to see transformation come to your family, to your wife, to your kids. What else does Christ's love for the church look like? Well, one, it's gracious. It's gracious. His love for the church is not based upon any particular way that we earned it. It doesn't wait for us to to look a particular way. It doesn't wait for us to do a particular thing. Christ's love for the church was gracious in that while we were yet sinners, he died on the cross for our sins. You don't sit and you wait for your wife to do something to earn your forgiveness. You don't sit and wait for your wife to act a particular way or say a particular thing or do a particular thing for you to love her the way that God calls you to love her. Well, we'll pick on that a little bit more later. It's responsible. It's gracious. It's redemptive. Talk about submission and talk about a willing disposition to to recognize what God has invested in the responsibility of a husband. 
what difference would it make to a wife to recognize a husband who understands the responsibility that he has to lead, to guide, to care for, to protect, to reconcile, that is, is, is born out of a gracious disposition that recognizes that it's of no merit of what she does that has to earn his love or earn his favor, and that his love is actually redemptive. His love is actually redemptive. The, the, the big word for it is, is efficacious, that God's love, Christ's love of the church, actually accomplishes something. Something actually occurs when Christ invests himself and loves his bride and loves the church. And the way that husbands are to love their wives is supposed to to produce something. It's supposed to be redemptive. It's supposed to be effective. In Ephesians 5, you see that he begins to sanctify the church. Christ sanctifies and and cleanses and renews the church, renews his bride. And, And husbands are to love their wives in a particular way that the way they love them and serve them and cherish them and nourish them and care for them and lead them and guide them should produce a transformation in their life. It should cultivate the character of Christ in their soul that they should be different as they're loved in greater proportions over time. That they are to actually change because of your love and your leadership and your care for them. What would it mean to what would it mean to recognize a, a husband who understands that responsibility, understands that calling, takes that responsibility seriously, and begins to pursue his wife in the way that Christ has pursued the church? Listen. This is this is something that will have lasting generational impact on your family and ultimately in the life of this church. We slowed down when we got here as we began to talk about it for a particular reason because there are a whole score of circumstances and situations and backgrounds and experiences in this place. And and if I'm honest, I I don't think, I think back on, on my exposure, I don't think until probably not too many years ago, I ever really understood what it meant to love my wife the way that Christ had loved the church the characteristics that were inherent in his love of me and how they were to reflect themselves in the way that I loved and served and honored and cared for and led my family and my wife. And without that, the expectation that we would have on wives to recognize that responsibility and to give themselves to it in a loving and gracious and supportive manner, becomes so difficult and gets so skewed and gets so twisted that even in the church, because of the way we approach it, we begin to create the very chaos, create the very dysfunction, um, create the very breakdowns that we're here to correct, that we're here to nurture, that we're here to see reconciled and redeemed. And so we actually got into this and began to slow it down because I want to take the time to actually process what these things actually mean. What does, what does it mean to love your wives the way that Christ has loved the church? Unpack it in, in detail next week. 
And what does it mean for a wife to, to give herself to her husband, to submit to her husband? It doesn't mean you, doesn't mean you go and pick up the dirty laundry and pick up the socks and get me a sandwich when I yell at you and, and do anything that I tell you to do. It means there's this inner disposition of soul. There's this attitude of a heart that willingly understands the responsibility that God has given to the husband and then the mission that he's given to the family. And as unto the Lord, gives herself to that calling, gives herself to that mission that God has sent that family on. Just as Christ has submitted himself to the will of the Father, and he came, wives recognize the responsibility and the mission that God has given the husband and given the family. That's simply a recognition of the responsibility and a cultivation of a disposition of the soul and the heart to recognize that and to give themselves to that mission and to that calling. And Paul's encouragement in this finds its place in the context of fighting the sin that resides within your soul. There is going to be part of you that rejects this. There's going to be part of me that rejects the calling to love my wife the way that Christ has loved the church. There's going to be part of my wife's soul that, re- that rejects the reality of recognizing my responsibility and submitting herself to it and to the calling and to the mission. That's why we have spent so much time on talking about putting sin to death because it's going to be there. It's a reality. But submission, get this, submission is an attitude of the heart. It's an inner disposition that's always linked to a sacrificial love, a Christ-like love of the husband. And when the husband begins to love his wife the way that Christ has loved the church, when he really recognizes the responsibility that is his, the role that is his, the way in which he's to love her graciously and redemptively, I really do think, I really do think, we'll begin to see some levels of change, transformation, and redemption take place in our lives, in our hearts, in our marriages. And that's what we're after. We're after being a part of the mission and the purpose that God has called us to and cultivating his character, his reflection in our hearts, in our souls, in our lives, in our marriages, in our families. And so next week, we're going to be a little more pointed. Next week, we're going we're to deal with what this looks like for the men to love their wives this way. What does it really look like and how then does it enable, how then does it enhance the calling that God has given the wives to be a part of the mission that he's given the family to be about cultivating his character? So that's where we'll go. Let me pray for us as we, as we wrap up. Father, thank you that you, uh, you did not leave you did not leave us to ourselves to figure out how a sinful man and a, and a sinful woman come together and work together, serving one another as unto you to accomplish your purposes and reflect your character and your glory here on this earth. You, you didn't leave us to figure that out on our own because honestly, we never would have. Um, our hearts are way too prone to make much of ourselves and serve ourselves and get for ourselves. And 
Lord, in the way we accomplish your purposes for our lives and for our families and for your glory here on earth is that we have hearts that want to make much of you. Serve one another as we serve you, that you might be glorified and you might be made known. And so God, help us to understand that. Help us to have hearts that, that desire or the desire to reflect your purposes for our lives and for our marriages. Lord, there's all kinds of frustration. There's all kinds of disappointment. Um, there's all kinds of discouragement that come when we talk about these things, when we talk about marriage, when we talk about what it means to love our wives the way that you've loved the church because we recognize how, how often we fail. And there's all kinds of discouragement and frustration and angst that comes when we talk about being a wife that comes alongside and, and gives herself to the calling of the family and the purpose that you've put in here and submitting to her husband. And it comes because we recognize how often we fail to do that. And so, God, we, we just ask that in the time, in the next couple of weeks as we wrap all this up before Easter, that, that you remind our hearts, you remind our souls, you bring encouragement and you bring strength to remember that no situation is beyond your transformation and redemption and that you've given us everything we need to be the people that you've called us to be, to live lives of, of godliness and, and honor and character that reflect your, your glory. Now, there is no marriage, there is no relationship, there's nothing in here that's beyond your transformation. There's no circumstance in the past that's not beyond your healing, that's not beyond your comfort, it's not beyond your peace. And so as we talk about these things, let them be less of discouragement and more of moments of awareness of where your grace abounds and where your grace comes and where your grace changes. We ask these things, Lord, that they begin to work themselves into our hearts and into our lives. That in the coming days and weeks and months and years ahead, our families and our relationships would, would bring you honor and bring you glory. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.